You may have read some Shakespeare in your time, whether you sought it out or had it foisted upon you in a high school English class. But whether you intended to or not, you are definitely more familiar with more of his oeuvre than you may have expected. Speaking for myself, it was all intentional. Throughout high school and college, I arranged my schedule to include as many Shakespeare classes as I possibly could without joining that rarefied circle of dramatic literature nerds that wears ruffs and pantaloons on just a regular Wednesday and refer to him exclusively in hushed tones as the Bard. But be you a neophyte to Elizabethan theater or a regular groundling, whether Stratford-upon-Avon is your personal Graceland, or whether you're a Shakespeare truther who thinks that the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays under a pen name and jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt iambic pentameter, it's difficult to deny that the most influential English-language writer's work is ripe for adaptation. From The Lion King to West Side Story to Ten Things I Hate About You, there have been some mighty loose adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. Macbeth, in particular, has inspired some pretty wild big-screen renditions. It was Roman Polanski's first film after the Manson murders. It was also one of Orson Welles' most tragic flops. Check out Scotland, PA if you'd like to see the tragedy framed as a thinly-veiled send-up of Ray Kroc's hostile takeover of McDonald's. And while Macbeth has brought some of the biggest filmmakers to the plate, very few have knocked it out of the park like Akira Kurosawa, leaving the sacred text completely behind and setting the story in the unrest of feudal Japan. Here we see all of Kurosawa's artistic obsessions come together to bring the best that Western and Eastern culture can offer into a seamless and unique retelling of a classic tale of ambition, fate, backstabbing, and frontstabbing, with a conclusion so dangerously visceral it's amazing Toshiro Mifune wasn't killed. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we navigate the confounding pathways of Spider's Web Forest through the thickest fog you've ever seen in Akira Kurosawa's 1957 quintessentially Japanese take on the Scottish play, Throne of Blood. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. It is July 20th, and I think we've basically given up on trying to state or keep track of episode numbers. Eh, they're numbered on uh, Apple somewhere. Doesn't really matter. We're in the double digits. We have now made it past the three-month mark, which is more than 50% of new podcasts can do. Our next big move will be making it past the three-year mark, which is something 90% of new podcasts don't do. So that's been my latest motivating statistic. Ooh. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. We hope you guys all had a great 4th of July. I was on vacation in Belize and it was awesome. That's why we got ahead of times on recording stuff. Celebrating our country's birthday by leaving the country. That's very suspicious, Daniele. You know, I already spent time uh, defending your freedoms uh, earlier in your life while you were oh, putzing damn. around in college, probably. Meh. 
I'm really excited because I've been hearing about Akira Kurosawa's films my entire life and all my friends who have gone to film school or have studied film in one way or another, he always comes up and uh, his influence on Western film and Westerns, et cetera, et cetera. And up until... And vice versa. Up until I was uh, last week years old, I had never <laughs> seen one of Kurosawa's <laughs> films. And we happened upon Throne of Blood... From 1957 because it seemed to have enough war in it and i didn't realize when i picked it that it was an adaptation of macbeth so this is our first time tackling shakespeare so i'm excited to have liam here with all his theater knowledge and katie here with all her knowledge of japanese culture and film i've been really looking forward to this and katie is here with our mission briefing Akira Kurosawa made three films that drew inspiration from Shakespeare, and Throne of Blood was the first. It is both thoroughly Japanese, as well as an excellent adaptation of The Scottish Play. It opens with the story of a rebellion against a feudal lord, and the two winning generals, Washizu and Miki, returning to the castle to celebrate their victory. Along the way, they get lost in the forest and come across a witch, who tells them that Washizu will soon rise to the position of lord, but that Miki's son will rule after him. Washizu's wife becomes enamored of the possibility and goads him into murder, which of course leads to violence, betrayal, and overwhelming tragedy. Throne of Blood is a masterpiece in many different ways. It is considered a superior adaptation of Macbeth, Kurosawa's writing and directing has resonated over the years with the symbolism that is packed into this film, and especially its gorgeous cinematography that came from a very difficult shoot. But when it was released, it wasn't that well received by general audiences. In Japan, it was thought to be old-fashioned because of Kurosawa's use of no theater techniques, and the New York Times review, the only contemporary one I could find online, was not the best. It found it to be hilarious in a distasteful and thoughtless review that makes no effort to see beyond the surface. The film did, however, win multiple accolades, Best Actor and Best Art Direction at the Mayanichi Film Awards in Japan, as well as being nominated for the Golden Lion at Venice. Kurosawa is, oddly enough, one of my blind spots in cinema, and I've only seen a couple of his films. What have your guys' experiences been with Kurosawa? So this is odd. I am in a similar boat to you. Uh, I This is honestly the first time that I've, I, like I've seen Kurosawa films before, but this is the first time that I've sat down and watched one all the way through. Like I've seen Seven Samurai in its entirety, but not all at once, <laughs> if that makes oh, any okay. sense. My, oh, yeah. my introduction to Kurosawa was actually in, in, in reference to the Magnificent Seven. Like when I was little, I watched the Magnificent Seven all the time. And I knew, um, that it was based on the seven samurai, which is really meta in a lot of ways because Kurosawa, like the, the ultimate Japanese filmmaker, uh, is, Oddly also, like he had a huge influence on uh, filmmakers today, but he was also influenced by Westerns and by Western filmmaking and Western art. 
as much as he was in a lot of respects by Japanese art. He, like you said, he had uh, multiple Shakespeare adaptations. Um, his samurai films uh, tended to follow the beats from like old John Ford Westerns uh, and, and things of that nature. So Magnificent Seven is kind of like an interesting like meta adaptation of a Western into a Western, but, but yeah, no, this was the first time I sat down and just watched one all the way through. Dan. Yeah. I would have actually watched this twice had I had the time, but I was too busy watching this incredible documentary from I think 2014 or 2015 called uh, Mifune, the last samurai, which I would highly recommend to the audience. Steven Spielberg, uh, produced it or was one of the producers Scorsese's interviewed in one of them and of course we haven't gotten to him yet but I knew he was going to come up a ton in this episode uh this is about Toshiro Mifune uh, also just as a side note and I'm sure Katie will talk about this a little bit as well we're mostly going to refer to these people by first name last name in Japan they would be in writing and in, and in spoken word referred to as last name first name that's the convention just for clarity and so nobody's running around trying to decide what people's first and last names are i think both the characters and the actors will just do them in western style because it'll be a little bit easier for most of the audience so toshiro mifuna made 16 films with kurosawa and i'll let katie fill some of that in but just if you want to know more about his life his acting style and his film uh Run, don't walk to go see uh, Mifune, The Last Samurai. You can get it on Prime with one of those like one week free trial subscriptions to some channel. Uh, so you can watch it for free if you like. Again, I, Jackie and I watched it twice or I watched it twice. She watched it once. I loved it. And it's really it talks about Kurosawa a lot as well. But it's mostly about this relationship between this giant movie star actor in Japan for incredibly obvious reasons as soon as you see him on screen and the director uh, because it's uh, arguably and I don't know, know anyone that can argue against this it's like the most prolific and important director actor relationship like in the history of cinema some people say so it's like Spielberg John Williams but with an actor ex that's a great example yeah and I don't know that there's another actor example that you could come up with Spielberg describes him as he seems in his characters he seems to be literally like sprung out of the earth volcanic is an adjective that's often used for him explosive I think chewing up the scenery in every scene he's in is like an understatement <laughs> and maybe I, I have a I don't want to say unique point of view because it sounds like you guys have also not seen that many Kurosawa films, but this being my introduction to it, it's like I just don't have a frame of reference because I haven't seen his other stuff. And I think that he runs the gamut. I, again, I'm sure Katie's going to cover some of this, um, but it's a it's an interesting thing to step into when you know you're watching something from someone great. And you've been hearing about it your whole life, and it's something people have been talking about for the last 70, 80 years, but it's like I don't have any personal experience with it or any background to go on to it. So it was one of those moments sitting down to watch a film where I was sort of like, 
oh, I'm about to be a witness to greatness and I don't exactly know what's going to happen and what I'm absorbing here. But it's like, you know, not every film you sit down to watch is like that. Now, how was that for you? Because sometimes that can set you up for disappointment. Um, what was your like not to not to just jump right to the end, but like what were your what were your feelings about watching this thing that you'd heard about forever? So I feel like when I think about my perception of Japanese film and samurai films, and again, this is coming from someone who's watched basically zero of them. So this is all perception through popular culture, through commercials, through other people talking about it, not actual experiences I've had myself, was definitely like, okay, I know this director's a great director, but it's like, I see the black and white. I see a bunch of Japanese guys who I'm having a hard time telling apart in similar samurai costumes. I don't understand the period or the background. I'm having a hard time telling them apart. The acting seems kind of overdone and it's also very Japanese, so like different from my culture. So right away off the bat, I was like, is this going to be boring or am I going to have a really hard time relating to this? I also don't have a huge background in Shakespeare other than what I read in high school and what I've been exposed to through, you know, popular film and media. So to be honest, I was sort of expecting to be disappointed. Like I was expecting to... A, not have the experience, background, or cognitive capacity to really understand the greatness. Kind of like something you watch in film school where you're like, okay, people are telling me this is great, but I'm not personally having an experience with it. And two, just having a hard time connecting to the characters, the language, etc. And I don't think I had any of those experiences, even in this story that is related to older and potentially less relatable uh, forms of storytelling, like the no theater that I know we're going to talk about and Shakespeare, right? Like this is not exactly super palatable, easy to understand stuff yet. The plot of the original play and the screenplay of the film is like simple enough that you can keep up with it. And I feel like it really allowed me to, focus on the performances and focus on the cinematography, despite the fact that I had to read subtitles throughout, obviously. Again, when I have the choice, when I know I'm doing it for a podcast, ideally I like to watch something with subtitles first and then watch it dubbed a second time because the second time I can sort of, again, it's hard to take notes while you're reading subtitles. And the second time I can see what else I'm catching in the cinematography and take notes. I wasn't able to do that this time. Plus I didn't find a dubbed version anyways. Good. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's anything. <laughs> there, no one's gonna dub this. They'd be ashamed. Who's gonna play Tashira Mifune's character? Like, where are you right? gonna get that? Guy? And I'm not trying to give uh, a dubbed foreign language film any accolades or advantage, other than the fact that it's just easier to take notes because you don't have to read the screen. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't need it. But that's my long-winded way to say that I was. At first, pleasantly surprised that I was A, keeping up with the story in the film and B, entertained and interested. Like, I didn't feel like there were any lulls, really. And it was just, you know, the pacing was great. And as I later read, but certainly my own personal experience was that ending, which I definitely don't want to talk about in detail until we get to it at the end of the show, really blew me away in like, just seven ways to Sunday. And I was like, 
wow, that was something incredible. And I, I'm just so excited that I have 16 other films to watch with this actor director and, and a lot of the other ones as well, as well as a lot of other Kurosawa films. I'm just, yeah, I was surprised, excited and really, really blown away by this. Excellent. Excellent. So Katie, how was this your first time watching this as well? This is my first time watching this. This is not my, as this isn't my first Kurosawa. My first Kurosawa was actually The Bad Sleep Well, which is his... Ooh, um, his Hamlet. Yes, exactly. Arguably his Hamlet. It's like his least... It's the least direct one adaptation. One. Yeah. Of, but one of the best titles I've ever heard. I heard that yeah. title a couple of times in research, and I was like, what a badass title, The Bad Sleep Well. But Ron is the other one, is his other Shakespeare, which is King Lear. Oh. What's fucked up about The Bad Sleep Well is that, like... In my brain, and this is just the way my brain works, like when I stop and I analyze the title, I'm like, yeah, badass title. When I, th- when I hear the title, my brain thinks of a well that you have to go into to get bad sleep. <laughs> As though anyone wants bad sleep. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's the, what, what well is that? That's the bad sleep well. That's Don't where you go to get well. the bad sleep. Don't sleep there. You want to go to the good sleep well. Exactly. Uh, but Mufune is in is in that as well. And that was filmed um, 19, 1960. And it, it's much more modern. It, mm-hmm. it is a contemporary businessman, right? Exactly. It takes place around the same time. It's set in very modern Japan. Um, this is, on the other hand, so much more. It's like it's like watching a play like I've watched. This is the most Japanese shit. It is. It really is. <laughs> and like here here's what I was thinking watching it is um so my my husband is very into cinema or into cinema and theater. He has seen a lot of theater and he introduced me to um The Phantom of the Opera and how he introduced me to that is uh we watched the 25th anniversary London stage adaptation or whatever. And so it's a camera filming a stage. And to a certain extent, this film really feels like that. And I was watching this and there's a, God, the scene where the the two of them, Washizu and Miki, come out of the forest together and they sit down to have a rest. And it's the two of them sitting very closely together on this black dirt ground and in the background you can see the castle and it feels like something that you would watch on stage of these two men sitting down and you could see the castle in the background as if you were watching it on stage it would be you know a map painting but in this it's almost certainly those two men are sitting just in the perfect spot in the background so that you could see the castle that they built on mount fuji for this production and every part of it is so staged and perfected. Um, everything is very Japanese and that it is thought out beforehand. Uh, the artistry is on display. And I was just like, yes, this is why I want to watch Kurosawa because he's such a perfectionist and he does his absolute best to recognize nuance and allow each moment to impact the audience and that works really well in this film because to me it was pretty spare like the scenes where they are inside it's the room 
and them. And that's it. There's no furniture. Most of the time, there might be a mat or two that someone is laying on, perhaps a meal. But otherwise, it's really everything is focused on the performances in this, which feels very stage play-like, if you will. Well, and that's also one of the... uh from from my understanding and what i've read japanese homes are not at least in this period were not known for being like very ornately furnished like it was kind of sparse anyway but that was also one of the ways that he was basically taking a lot of his cues from no theater uh this was very much a no theater production whereas like if you go to see a performance in a no theater the stage actually just does look like the interior shots of this movie. Right. It's very bland and like a blank canvas almost. It's a right? blank canvas, but it's also very wood paneled with like, you know, you'd have like maybe a little bit of background of like uh, uh, paper screens. Yeah. I think the traditional thing is a pine tree painted in the background. I'm not sure if that's supposed to represent actual scenery or if it's painted on like one of those paper like divisions, like an artistic thing. I'm not sure, but I know that's like a really common setup. And sometimes it'll have like a bit of a roof on it, you know, with like the, the posts around the like support beams around the stage itself. So this is, I'm going to go on for a minute, so I apologize. But one of the reasons why I have trouble sitting down and watching an entire Kurosawa in part is because of the because of the film. I don't know if it's the lens quality or the quality of the film stock, but when they're doing exterior shots, which Kurosawa does a lot of exterior shots Mm -hmm. from what I've seen. Like he does a lot of like natural lighting shit where it's just like, Hey, I'm going to take my camera outside and do this thing. It has a different look than you see in Hollywood, like mainstream Hollywood cinema of the same period, but also like European cinema has its own look. Like if you, if you look at, some of the some of the film that was being done in like in the UK in the early 60s that has a distinct look uh french film uh like has has a distinct 70s german film yeah exactly like and it's weird because it happens in countries by decade and it's just like you look at it and you know what you're looking at it's it feels unintentional i know exactly what you're talking about and it feels like there's like this weird quality to it where it's 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 almost like uh it it feels like kurosawa dug a camera out of the dirt found it and decided to make a movie with it like it looks kind of shitty but he's doing amazing things with it. Like, you know what I mean? It's like if the guy who like a guy who knows how to do literally anything with a camera buys like a $2 camera from a pawn shop and decides he's going to make citizen Kane with it. That's what Kurosawa movies look like to me. It's unpolished, but 100% intentional in everything that the camera does. So it has this like raw feeling to it that I don't always immediately immediately connect with in some ways that is 
that allows me to connect more with the performances that I'm seeing, but it also, you know, it being oftentimes highly stylized and in a completely different culture and a completely different language with completely different archetypes that I'm used to seeing, there's a few barriers there as well. Um, so like, I don't immediately like jump on Kurosawa this way. Some people do, but that being said in this one, I noticed a few things, uh, not only in the adaptation from the Shakespeare. And I know Dan, you you're eager to talk about some of that. Cause I'm the expert on theater and Shakespeare. You are the expert on yeah. you're, you're our resident <laughs> Shakespeare guy. So you you brought up the the point where they're sitting there talking in front of the castle like they're they're sitting down to arrest fairly for the time period in which this was made and the type of movie that this is made to be and the source material that it's adapted from fairly naturalistic acting yeah definitely cuz they're like as they come upon it uh, Mifune's character, uh, Washizu, is is like, oh, my armor is so heavy. I just need to rest before we go in to see the Lord or whatever. And Miki is like, yeah, let's let's just take a second. Let's take a second to talk about what we've seen. And then they're like laughing about that bullshit that that weird old man woman in the in the hut that's not there anymore told us. You know, like right, right. I swear, to, I everything I've read about this says that that's a woman i thought i saw a beard on her it's a woman i am i the only one that saw like whiskers is that weird that like, doesn't mean it's not a woman honestly I, well i know but like i had a really difficult time discerning sex or gender on this forest demon i think it's supposed to be to a certain extent um fluid because I think the, and we'll get into this later, I think both the witch who the, because it's very much defined as a witch uh, that we see in the cage who gives them their uh, future prediction and the forest spirit that we see haunting them before they actually get there and afterwards, uh, I think those are supposed to be the same entity. So I think it's supposed to be a genderless entity is taking on some facade of a gender to project a point. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in particular in that first scene with the evil spirit, which however you want to think about it, um, it is a woman spinning thread. Mm -hmm. And that is a very traditional female role in that society. And so, well, and also in no, in no theater itself, like that's actually a motif from like one of the famous, uh, and, and apologies. I don't remember the exact title of the piece of the play, but there is like one of the big original no theater pieces focuses on a, a spirit that is sitting there in the form of a person who is spinning the the thread on that wheel just right. like that so the thread of life as it were and the yeah. same thing we see in like the greek in in tragic greek tragedies as it were so i think that's kind of where the and spirits in my understanding again this is my very white person layman understanding of japan spirits affect a much more gender neutral appearance they can go either way in japanese folklore 
It makes a lot of sense, honestly, in any mythology. Like a spirit doesn't need a gender. It like can inhabit a exactly. woman, it can inhabit a man, it can inhabit an animal or the wind or lightning or whatever. So it kind of exactly. makes sense. It's not even human. So And it's more the gender is more for the effect of those viewing it. Right. As in in this instance, Miki and Washizu, as in they are supposed to take away from this this particular idea, and so therefore it inhabits a specific type of gender in order to get that message across. So Right. It's also combining three witches in the original play, which I don't think their voices mattered, meaning like they may all take turns speaking, but they're all giving the message together, right? So it doesn't matter. Right. One person, three people. They did, but there was also a little bit more... I've- Maybe comedic, but like there was a a little bit more filler. I feel like with the witches, they're like, "Oh well, I brought the rat's tail from so and so," and it's like, "Oh, did you bring the eye of Newt?" And it's it's very like classical witchy sort of nomenclature yeah. stuff within that tradition within Scots and Celtic and English uh, witchcraft tradition. Women were the only possible option for that mm-hmm, kind of display, mm-hmm. and that they are all bringing their individual parts together represents the three, you know, maiden, mother, and crone. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's a particular mythology the that Shakespearean exactly. There's a particular mythology that Shakespeare is using that Kurosawa does not have. His because demons and ghosts in Japan are are much more gender neutral than they are with western mythology i actually kind of preferred the single spirit i i the maybe it was because it didn't have the busy work of bringing the eye of newt to the cauldron right it's all very blank and and, and speaking in like bubble and trouble and toil and boil and like kind of sing-songiness i found the spirit to be much more chilling and effective than i have in any in any adaptation of the Scottish play. But one of the things that I was eventually trying to get to was the, you you know that Kurosawa is in very much command of what he is doing. Or the, the, the key, my key into this movie was the, the symbolism in the framing. And this movie was called uh, spider's web castle. In Japanese, correct? Like we we call it Throne of Blood, but the we original- would. So that's a direct translation. The correct translation would be the Castle of the Spider's Web, because Spider's Web Castle is not. That's not how they would think of it. And it's and it got its name because it's behind Spider's Web Forest, which is exactly. impossible to penetrate because it's so got so many twists and turns in the trails and things like that. But when they're traveling through. Um, when they're traveling through the forest, that's absolutely reflected in all of the tree limbs that are twisting and gnarling their way through the mise-en-scene mm-hmm. of, of the, 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 the camera movements and everything. It's just the way all the shots are, are composed, it, it reinforces that idea of being caught up in this web. Right, and there are multiple scenes of spiders' webs and spiders within those shots that are kind of hard to see because, you know, 1960s film. But they they do make an effort to really string that through in 
the original film that isn't necessarily caught because we think of this film as Throne of Blood, not Castle of the Spider's Web. Right. I mean, not to mention that there's like a, I don't want to say tropey because that makes it sound negative, but there's a scene at the beginning of their ride where they're literally like, wait, where are we? I recognize that tree. We just went around in a circle. Like, it's very obvious that the- And then they get lost in the fog and they're like, let's ride over here. And then they like disappear in the fog and then they like come back up to the front like their Grover playing near and far. It's like, yeah. Near, so, far. you know, what's funny about that is that in filming this, is that what they did? Did so they just like go into the fog and then come back bit. up? Well, a <laughs> little bit. That's what it looks like. I don't know if it was Kurosawa or whoever was manning the camera or someone else on the crew, but because they were doing a lot of these two riders going into the fog and then coming out of the fog, often they would have to direct them by voice to get them to come towards the camera. They had to be like, we're over here. And then they would ride in that direction because they were really in fog. And I cannot, I can no longer discern the differences between the natural fog and the dry ice they used in certain scenes. For example, this is, and this is a mix, right, of interior sets built in Japan and then on location right. shoots. The most of the time you're seeing the dark dirt, like when they take a break in front of the castle, that's a re, they really built that whole set on Mount Fuji. That's volcanic soil. That's why it's dark. They even took some of the soil to then build the courtyard set, which was built on a soundstage, to throw some of that dirt out front when the gate was open so that it would match. Um, similarly, in the forest, uh, they filmed some of it in a real forest, and then Kurosawa would do one of these sort of cuts that he's famous for, where like the camera passes behind a big tree, and next thing you know, you're at the demon's hut, and you've got dry ice providing more mist, and you've got these spotlights that give the ghost, it's like ghosts, or I won't say ghosts because there are ghosts in this and it's a different, they're different characters, but the spirit, it's like lit up appearance that came from spotlights. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, whereas, so the reason Kurosawa picked Fuji in the first place, which like when you think of Mount Fuji, you often think of this cut top volcano right that has a flat top from the crater and then all the snow at the very top and usually like a cherry tree somewhere but it's like this really gorgeous shape that's pretty recognizable a lot of volcanoes have a very signature shape to them and i think mount fuji both because of the shape and because of the setting is very recognizable of course we don't see any shots of the top of mount fuji in this and that's because kurosawa did not pick the location because of the mountain he picked it because it was very barren at the bottom and there weren't any trees growing there. And because often it had fog at the bottom. And so he wanted a location where he could have natural fog flowing in and out so he could use it for his scenes. Right. Because fog was such a big deal for this film. Like so much of what we see on screen that has fog is from Mount Fuji and he very particularly talked about this being something that is about fog and shadow because the reality of what's going on with the people in this is so buried within their own emotional fog and their own ideas of what is right and what is wrong. And so he uses the landscape to fulfill his uh, his 
desires in regards to how it comes across and with all that fog and the deep and stark shadows that make up so much of this movie. So I have a question for you guys in regards to Shakespeare. So obviously a lot of this narrative, both in the original play and in this film is driven by this initial demon and by its prophecy uh, twice, right? It returns later in right. the story and tells Macbeth more. And that drives Macbeth, uh, sorry, Lord Washizu and Lady Washizu's motivation. Lady Asaji? Asaji? Lady Asaji. You would call him Lord Washizu. She is Lady Asaji. She goes by her her. What we call her first name? Yeah, in Western nomenclature, we would call her first name. Okay, Lady Asaji. So what I see in the plot is a lot of characters, or at least the ones who know about it, talking about this prophecy and then either trying to lean into it by helping it happen or fighting it. Now, my question is, I imagine that this is not the only Shakespeare where there is an oracle or a fortune teller or somebody who's predicting the future. This sounds pretty familiar. In the stories that Shakespeare wrote, can you ever fight against the predictions of an oracle or a spirit or whatever? Or is it just, mm. this is the future and that is always what happens regardless of what the characters try and do? So a couple of things with Shakespeare. The The other big one, I think, would be the ghost of Hamlet's father. Mm-hmm. Is, is the first big one that comes to mind, which is a supernatural entity giving what in the, the dramatic action would be called like the, the, the call to action, say like the catalyst. This is, mm-hmm. this is what drives it is Hamlet's father shows up to him as a ghost and says, your uncle killed me and then married your mother. You need to do something about that. Or the three witches saying, oh, well, you're supposed to be king. We've seen it. I'm like Rashid over here. Rashid has seen it. (laughs) And that's, it's a call to action. It's planting the seed. And then part of that in both of those instances, there's a lot of questioning that goes on. Did I see what I really saw? What are the intentions of the thing telling me the thing? There's a lot of questions like, oh, did this is this ghost really the devil who's come to tempt me into murdering my uncle for no reason? There's a lot of moral hand wringing that goes into it with Shakespeare. Whereas in this, it seemed like there was less moralizing about like, do we know what this demon's intentions are? And it's more like, is the, is the evil spirit right? Or is the evil spirit wrong? And I think that's that's more based in Asian culture around um, spirits and ghosts and uh, future prediction. Like they see it and they're like, oh, look, an evil spirit. Like they know it's evil. They call it evil to its face. <laughs> All of them except Lady Asashi. She does not ever. Well, she never saw it. But she at no point calls it evil. The, the two men do. But she does not. And I think that, but that also plays a part into 
And here's my otaku self. For those of you who've watched a lot of Inuyasha, um, <laughs> Inuyasha deals very particularly. Oh, Inuyasha. Um, <laughs> Inuyasha deals a lot with demons because in Japan, demons and gods and um, those kinds of things are very, if we in the Western world would consider them very mixed and blended because of uh, how the Shinto religion works. And they, in my understanding, they don't necessarily view what we would call demons as good or bad. There are no moral judgments. It's just that these demons are, they are looking out for themselves. They are, again, selfish in their in their viewpoints and how they act. And so therefore they always have alternate reasons they are doing things and we might not know why they do them but that doesn't mean that we as individuals cannot like jump on board their actions to benefit ourselves and that's very much where this feels from is that this this demon is telling them you know here's what's going to come to pass but now it's left up to the interpretation of those who hear this prophecy as to how it's going to come to pass. From what I understand, also, Shakespeare usually has his characters, they usually proclaim their vision in a, in a form that's considered a riddle or that can be interpreted in multiple ways. And often the characters are discussing and struggling internally and externally with what exactly the demon or entity meant, right? Like that's also common. Right. Well, not... It- what I was going to say is that in Shakespeare, you Shakespeare came after the Greeks. So there are a lot of, you know, if you look at like his plays like Julius Caesar, there's a lot of prophecies and dreams and ghosts and things like that. But a lot of that is drawing cues from Greek theater, which was a religious rite and dealt with the gods and a great detail and used prophecies to set up tragic falls and things like that. And in those instances, like if you look at, if you look at Oedipus and the riddle of the Sphinx and things like that, those were oftentimes more cloaked in mystery in Shakespeare. They could be, but not nearly to the same extent, but they would, they would draw a lot of the same cues. So I think more often than not, it would be an instance of guessing at the intentions of the messenger than it would be what the messenger was actually trying to say. Be like, okay, I know what you just said, but why did you say it? Why are you telling me this? Because at the time, it was more like moral lessons were woven into these things in part out of necessity for survival, because a lot of people thought that theater folk were little better than prostitutes and were out for the ruin of what have you. So unless you had a really solid patron looking out for you, you were kind of left to your own devices and so in these in these moral lessons that they're that they're providing for you tragic characters usually have a tragic flaw that they focus on in the scottish play it's ambition and it's like awesome dude 
except for that one thing. And that one thing that's really bad about him leads to his tragic fall in Othello. It's jealousy and being black (laughs) in Hamlet. It's indecision. He spends all of his time weighing whether or not he should. Oh, should I, shouldn't I, do I trust this ghost? Don't I trust this ghost? Like there were like three or four different times in Hamlet that he could have just killed Claudius and everything would have been fine. So in most of the tragedies, there is like one takeaway that you take away from it. The secondary takeaway from it, and this was more to appease the patrons and the nobility and the royals rather than the church. The second takeaway that you always see in these is you don't get to fucking kill the king. You just (laughs) don't. You don't get to do it. In the Scottish play, there are, there are serious repercussions for killing the right. king. In Hamlet, not only does Hamlet kill the king and ends up dying himself, but on top of that, Fortinbras comes in at the end. A foreign power comes in and takes over. Right. So it's like if you kill the king, fucking everything. Like it's not just you're going to pay; the whole country pays. Like, and there's always that thing at the end it's kind of like at the end of uh isaac newton's principia mathematica when he does all this science shit and then at the end he's like oh and of course it's because god said so so like the church didn't kill him it's like that but with the royals so it's like and yes we told this big long story about killing the king but it was very bad and very wrong of him to do so and that's how you know because he's dead now and now some other foreign power is in charge like it it always goes like that so it's not necessarily about whether or not you can escape. If the point of the tragedy was to escape the the fate, then it wouldn't be a tragedy anymore. But the fate can either be from a prophecy, from a ghost, from a demon, or just from, from a villain like Iago and Othello, who is like, oh, by the way, I know you're really jealous. I found this handkerchief. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, not necessarily because it's a prophecy. It's just because there's one thing wrong with you. And that thing is going to lead to your end. Right. And then this, it's ambition. Yes. And this is ambition and greed. Uh, Kurosawa took, talked a lot about um, the cyclical nature of man in this, in this film. And I think that's very much on display and i think he he really tries to sell that in the scene with where they first meet the witch and she is uh rolling the giant wheel to spin the thread it is a perfect circle like a spider exactly that too and it's um this idea that cuz she says these are not ideas i'm coming up with these are your dreams I am reflecting your dreams back at you. And there's always the question for me as I was watching this anyway, as of like, well, is sh- is this demon or this witch telling the future as how she wants it to be and influencing these men? Or is this these this is what will happen? And she is merely saying it. And there's also the point that the witch and the evil demon or whoever never talks about bloodshed in this. She merely states, this is what's going to happen. 
And then the bloodshed that comes from it is entirely caused by the men involved in it. It's the monkey's paw kind of thing. Exactly. Where it's like you make a wish, but you don't take into account all of the things that happen for that thing to come true. And the question with this movie is there are so many points in it where you watch it and it's like, you didn't need to kill anybody. You didn't need to kill anybody for this to happen. Like down to the point where he could have killed the Lord and, and taken over and then had Miki's son be his heir. And if he had done that, he would have avoided all this bloodshed. And then it kind of keeps going back and back where steps. It's like, well, did you really need to take any of these gory actions at all. It's actually something that she that they bring up that I was like, wait a second, your argument is bullshit, lady. <laughs> when Lady Asaji is like, look at all of these things that you didn't like everything the the spirit in the forest said came true and you didn't have to lift a finger. So I mean like this is just the way it's gotta go. And I'm like, well if that's the case, then like why not just wait for the Lord to die? Exactly. Like, if I didn't have to lift a finger so far, I'm going to continue to not lift a finger. Like, all of a sudden, I'm a tool of the fates when before the fates were just working out for me. Like, so what's going on with that? So, I again, I watched the... Uh, I'm not superstitious and I don't give a shit, so I watched the 2015 version of Macbeth with Michael Fassbender. Because we're not going to get Liam to say the word out loud, but it's a character and the name. What's the play called, Liam? The Scottish play. <laughs> the tragedy of the Scottish play. Huh. And it's about the Scottish king. Right. I thought there was a name. Hmm. Dan and I will have to think of it, huh? First of all, first and foremost, we're not in a theater. So I can say Macbeth <laughs> all day long. You yes! don't say Macbeth. Thank you. You don't say Macbeth in the theater. Got it. If you do, you have to go outside of the theater, turn around three times, spit, and then curse. And- Okay. The idea isn't that, like, you're going to die. It's more like the play is not going to be successful. Yeah, that's my understanding. Not even that. It's not that you're going to die. It's not that the play is not going to be successful. Just to re-clarify for the audience, a point that Liam has made very clear to us is that you're not supposed to say Macbeth out loud, which he hasn't in all our correspondence yet today. We're finding out it. it's supposed to be just in a theater. Just in a theater. It, so officially. this is what we're tiptoeing around but still like i mean you just sort of like train yourself to like it's the scottish play and he is the scottish king when you're in the theater you don't want to tempt the uh, witches you you don't, don't tempt in, fate in, in the in in the the words of toby ziegler from the west wing you don't want to tempt the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing <laughs> <laughs> but the my school like the year before i went to college my school did the Scottish play and one of the actors, his name was Chris, Christopher Guthrie. There's a, a part where he was, so it was a two level stage. Like there was a below and above, like you would see in a lot of Shakespearean plays. And he was to fall off stage from the above and people were to catch him. Oh no. And on closing night, they missed and he got <gasps> dropped on his head. But like, oh. he was kind of the lightning rod of our theater department anyway. Christopher, if you're listening to this, hello. I hope you're still alive. <laughs> I hope your TBI is okay. But it, 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 so he got dropped on his head, like 
shook it off, went outside, smoked a cigarette and came back. Uh, but like everything bad happened to him when they did Faust, he like, there was pyro going on and he got set on fire and like had to go off stage and get put out with the fire extinguisher. Like it, it was, it, it's six to five and pick him whether it was the fact that we were doing the Scottish play or the fact that it was Christopher Guthrie, because if something bad was going to happen, it was going to happen to him. But he never broke the rule. No, oh. no. But it's just like when you do Macbeth, bad things happen. If you say uh. Macbeth while you're doing Macbeth and it's not because of you're saying the name in the play, bad juju. And it's like, it's been around so long that there is, I like, I'm not really actually superstitious either, but like you just kind of train yourself to call it the Scottish play out of deference to people who are more superstitious. Got it. So I'm going to go back to 18 minutes ago when I was going to make this one point that now I had to struggle to remember. But, um, and again, we're stepping into the play a little bit more than the film right now, but we'll get back to the film in a second. So going back to the Michael Fassbender film, one thing that I noticed uh, in their particular visualization or depiction of when the character of Macbeth gets promoted to the fane of something caught or basically when the first witch's prediction comes true he is handed this like sash essentially that is the representation of that title by the the other character that came from the castle or whatever who then explains because he's like but he's still alive why would i take his role and he's like oh no he's a traitor and we had him killed so now here you go and the actor plays this off very well, I'll, I'll add. He looks at it, and the other character just, like, leaves it on the ground and backs away and gets on his horse and leaves. <laughs> and I remember watching that scene going, oh, this is really cool. They are showing what's going on in his head, which is, yay, I'm getting promoted. Also, the king executed the last guy who had this uh, role, so now... Yay, I get to wear this sash. When am I going to be executed? All that to say that in some ways, it's the king that started the bloodshed. And in terms of the character question, like, do I actually need to start killing people here in, what do you call it, a defensive first strike, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you're the Marine, man. You'd know what it's called better than we would. I think uh, probably in the original play, certainly in that depiction in the film. And I don't remember if in the throne of blood, the previous holder of the title is simply demoted or whether he's killed. Which Okay. Wait a sec. Which guy are you guys talking about? So Washizu receives this title at the beginning from this other guy who no longer has it, right? Which is the first verification that Inui. Yeah, yeah. Was he's, it the, he's the rebel. Oh, Inui, Inui is the did rebel. rebel against the great lord. And Correct. So did they kill him? Did they execute him? No, Inuya is the guy who is revolting against everything. Mutinying, I think is what they said. And, the- yes, and it, he gets away with it. And then Washizu is the one who gets the North Castle. Right. That Inuya used to occupy. Okay, so in this story, he has abandoned his post and rebelled against the Great Lord, but he's not executed by the Great Lord. No. He offers to shave his head, and the Great Lord is like, nah, fuck that, that's not enough. 
Tezuki is the great lord, right, by the way. Right, right. Lord Washizu knows the prophecy. If he tells the great lord, he could conspire against you, so you have to kill him. It wasn't based on his predecessor being killed in this story. So In this story, no. And it, and it occurred to me that I was like, well, if you're worried about him saying about the prophecy from the evil spirit to the king, the king's right there. Why don't you just be like, hey, man, real talk. I know you trust me. I want to be worthy of that trust. I was... In the forest, there was an evil spirit. The evil spirit told me this thing. I don't want it to be true. I want you to know that I have no ill intent here. So I'm telling you that the evil spirit said I was going to be king. But then the point about ambition creating a vicious cycle of murder would not work as well. In the play Macbeth, I feel like we see more of Macbeth's ambition than we see of Tashir Mifune's ambition in Throne of Blood. I think in this, there is a certain cultural disconnect in that there is a lot of pride and honor built into the Japanese feudal tradition that this is very much taking from. And I think uh, Washizu's wife, Lady Asagi, really takes advantage of that. And I think we'll get into more about Lady Asagi a little bit a little bit later, but I think there wasn't that kind of nuance in this era in Japan, whereas admitting that you saw this uh, ghost saying these things or demon or whatever, however they would have put it then, to to tell your lord this would have been the equivalent of admitting these were your dreams and would have resulted mm. in a either a killing by the lord or an expectation of ritual suicide. Because it's a violation, even just the idea of you could rule instead of the Lord is a violation of the contract between feudal lords and their vassals. Maybe also being written off as as insane or like kind of losing it. I no, no, no. no. It would have been much more um, intentional. Well, if you know this about yourself. Why would you not sacrifice yourself for me mm. to prolong my reign would have been the more, at least again, in my perspective, that would have been the more appropriate in that culture as opposed to, well, you wouldn't kill yourself because you, you know, you, you want to live <laughs> and you're just trying right. to save yourself. So in that culture, it's like if you know that you're supposed to usurp the lord's power then your next move if you actually value the lord is to kill yourself rather than take his power for yourself there was a a lot more focus in throne of blood on what is hidden in his heart as opposed to like in shakespeare you get asides and soliloquies where the character directly addresses the audience So, like, if you read the play, there will be little sections that are, like, aside. And sometimes people will read that as to themselves. Mm -hmm. Right, or the actor stepping aside to, like, break the fourth wall type thing. In the Shakespearean acting tradition, it would have been them actually turning to the audience and saying it to the audience that nobody else could hear on stage. And that's what it means, aside. So like, but you think of it as far as like a character motivation as being like, oh, you're saying this to yourself. 
in your head, but that's that has that was a a character motivation that was completely foreign to them in Shakespearean times. In this film, that is non-existent whatsoever. So all of that stuff that is being said outright in Shakespeare in this is just like, you have to admit this is in your heart, right? And he's like, I don't have to admit shit to you. <laughs> now, Dave was the only person who came through and did some research for this film. So he sends me, you know, a good five, six pages of research and I'm looking it over and it's got like, he's like, I'm not going to go all sword nerd here. And then there's a diagram of a katana and I shit you not, it is labeled just the blade without the handle has 14 different points where it's labeled. All of these labels are in Japanese. (laughs) I'm looking at it like. Okay, Dave, that's great. This is super helpful research. I can't wait to read this out loud to the audience. I love you, Dave. I I appreciate Dave's nerdy sword knowledge. So this film takes place, it never specifies the year, but this is the Sengoku or Warring States period in Japan. So somewhere between 1467 and 1614, probably the 16th century. It was a lawless period where Japan had an emperor, but and and the daimyos or, or lords swore allegiance to the emperor, but essentially it was accepted that they were going to fight with each other over control of the castles and the regions. So there was a lot of civil war, basically. It's like a civil war period in Japan. Medieval Scotland in the 11th century versus feudal Japan kind of they were both pretty rough places to live, so it's not that much of a stretch, even though they happened in different centuries. The sense of apocalypse that you get from, I think, the really bare ground everywhere around outside and the killing, the fighting, and the amount of blood in it has been described as more of a post-war contemporary view of 1600s Japan more so than an accurate reflection of what was happening. Meaning that while everything else I said was true about the period and and the warring states, these wars and the volume of killing that was happening was not necessarily as depicted in the film. So Kurosawa obviously lived through the war as well as Mifune. Mifune was in the war. He was a pilot. He was lucky enough to be in a photo- aerial photography unit, but he trained kamikaze pilots how to fly and like sent them off to their duty. So both the director and the wow. main actor had personal experience with the war and Japan losing the war, the famines that happened afterwards. So it's really interesting that this kind of affected how Kurosawa wanted to depict a period like this, but experts seem to agree that it's more a depiction of the times the quote-unquote modern Japanese lived through in that era as opposed to a realistic depiction of the 1600s in Japan. Though there's not a lot of sword fighting in this film. Obviously in samurai movies there's a lot of sword fighting with the katana, the samurai, for especially for like a 750-year period, were more known for their skilled horse archery, and that's a lot more how they fought. That's why if you ever see the asymmetrical armor, where only the left side mm. of the bot of the arms is armored and the right side is more bare, that's because they were shooting arrows with that hand, 
And so to have more flexible movement, they didn't have armor on their, on the shooting, I, I believe on the shooting side of their body. I had a question that Dave didn't exactly answer in the research. So I'm curious if someone else who knows about other time periods or other armor can answer this question. I remember learning recently that the common depiction of the Viking helmet is bullshit. Yeah, not so much in modern shows like Vikings, I think, is probably pretty accurate. That show seems to do really well. And so I believe the armor and weapons in that are generally accurate. But the old school depiction of the Viking with the horned helmet comes from theater. That was first created uh, in a costume in theater. And after that, people kind of ran with it and depicted Vikings with these horns but the reason why that's not accurate and not realistic is because in con- in close combat, um, especially before firearms, like you wouldn't want to have horns on your helmet because especially if that helmet has a chin strap and is secured to your head, that means that someone can grab the horn and now control your head, which controls your whole body and would be a much easier way to kill you. So you would want a helmet to be you know smooth and not have things to hold onto like a handle with these samurai helmets, though, it's different. They have symbols, which I imagine symbolize their clans and, and affiliations, etc. But one of them even depicted in the film, and I've seen uh, accurate historical drawings or photographs of them. Some of them have horns. And I was just curious if anyone can answer why the samurai were able to get away with having horns on their helmets. Is that because of the style of fighting that they commonly engaged in, which, you know, often was like one on one sword fighting. They had a lot of rules they abided by. It's quite possible that like doing something like that would be considered a trick or unsportsmanlike. And so they wouldn't have done that. But I'm just curious what the difference is between uh, like the Viking helmet and the Japanese helmet and why horns were in one, but not the other. And lastly, uh, with all the no stuff that we talked about, one thing that was brought up was the quote unquote assertive fluting that's in it. And I was (laughs) like, that's one way to call it. I felt like some of the higher notes on the flute reminded me of like when you're in fifth grade and you have the like plastic recorder the recorder did they have that in yeah oh totally we had those in like fourth grade or whatever (laughs) and little kids are just like blowing the shit out of them as hard as they can and it's making this like piercing sound i'm pretty sure i heard some of those sounds in this soundtrack here's here here's your resident otaku to educate you please okay so music in Japan in general, and especially when we come to artistic performances like plays, theaters, movies, all that kind of stuff, they are meant to make you uncomfortable. Check. (laughs) Those sounds are meant to make you feel awkward and upset and uh, like done and done. Uh, like you want to slap a ten-year-old, and and that that's that's your particular perspective on it. The fact that you have a particular trigger for slapping a 10 year old and it's not just like (laughs) your your constant state of being tells me that you don't have enough 10 year olds in your life so that's what it comes from it is if you feel irritated and upset by it that's supposed to be the result those sounds are supposed to be upsetting and painful almost because that is the emotion they are supposed to elicit in the viewer so 
That's why. It's on purpose. It's not just because that no one it's not just because the the player doesn't know what they're fucking doing. It's it's on purpose. As a side note, the composer of this film, his name is uh, Masaru Sato or Sato, that he had a week to compose this score. Which Jesus is like, well, when Christ. you only have a week, just hit all those high notes on the flute, man. <laughs> I mean, I've heard of like, often the thing you hear about films is that, you know, the composer is the last person to get the rough edit. And then it's like, okay, uh, you got six weeks to write the score. And that's like super tight. And that happens all the time. I've never heard of one week. Like that is rough. <laughs> so here's where I want to get into Lady Asagi with you guys. So I think that... Lady Asagi is a character that you can read very, very straight. And by that, I mean, you can judge her actions and words exactly as they appear in the film. Or you can view her as someone who has been um, possessed and is influencing um, Washizu and the situation on behalf of the evil spirit. And I read a very interesting thesis by Lori Kircher, who talks about uh, the misunderstood Lady Asagi, where she gives a lot of background for no theater to cement the idea that Kurosawa meant Lady Asagi to be presented as someone who is possessed rather than a Lady Macbeth character who traditionally is viewed as a manipulative maniacal scheming woman trying to gain power for both herself and her husband and there is a precedent for both options i think within japanese story and cinema to have the wife who is we need to gain power we need to solidify our control over the situation and someone who is controlled by a spirit who is manipulating them to assert their will on the situation and bring about uh, the downfall of the people that they have met or are enslaving or enchanting at the time. Like, we get the sense that Washizu is being enchanted. And from a complete layman's perspective and someone who hasn't been exposed to most of this stuff... That was my initial impression, just based on her body language and the way she performed the lines. I mean, for one, the whole makeup looking like a mask aspect makes her look very ghostly in the first place. So, like, she's not that human looking to begin with, but put a couple spotlights on her and she's an apparition, too. Um, now, you don't get to see her before this prophecy, so you don't get to see any casual moment as obviously it doesn't belong in this play or film. Right, we only see her in this it, from this perspective. We don't get to see her outside. So you that. can't compare her to how she was before. Let's say she was possessed by an evil spirit for the sake of argument. You don't get to see what she looked like before, but... Also, Washizu's character doesn't really react to her as if she's being possessed. She he just yeah, kind of it's like, not like oh shit, lady, you look really ghostly right now. Like, I mean, this is less weird than the day I was having a fucking couple hours ago in the forest. So he's like, all right, but I feel like just everything about how they're 
they're making her deliver her lines, which I know Kurosawa was very specific about. He gave her instructions like, do not blink in this entire scene. Right. Don't move. Hold very still. All of that. There are some references to no and the masks that I know Liam is going to explain. But beyond that, it's just the entire production, I felt like, revolved around making her look very almost non-human. The scene, a beautiful scene when she's talking about drugging the Lord's guards so that they can enact this murder. And she goes to get this container. For one, she swishes her way with her little feet with her silk robes brushing around, which I think they added the sound on purpose because they specifically wanted that sound to come out, which is kind of creepy and weird. But she then goes into that back room that's completely dark and like disappears, fades away into the darkness and then fades back in carrying the poison or the drug or whatever. I mean, first of all, that's just shot beautifully. The way she it disappears is. and reappears without any trickery, really. It's just the lighting is amazing. But also, again, it, it really makes you feel like, yeah, if she's delivering the spirit's intentions, I would not be surprised because all the visuals are kind of reinforcing that. So I 100% buy into that aspect of this depiction of this story as opposed to oh she's straight up evil blinded by ambition etc like i really felt like she seemed like a character possessed by something else there's only a few things we hear from lady isashi and one of them is her voice which is very ghost like echoey monotone yeah projected not directed at him she never looks at him she's just kind of staring at the ground while no. she's talking there's only a couple instances where she looks at him and otherwise she is looking at the ground and she's holding a very particular kind of pose, which poses mean a lot in, in Japanese culture. And I'm not going to get into it more than that. Um, but she is holding a very particular kind of pose. She has, uh, for those who weren't looking, she is wearing no less than four different outer garments at that point. Japanese women that time and that class had a very particular demanding kind of lifestyle like from her hairstyle to how her robes are arranged to the robe she's wearing all of that has meaning and she must be melting too like under those lights uh, (laughs) god right oh my god and and she's wearing very dramatic makeup like the choice for those who are looking her eyebrows are whited out but then she has two dots kind of just above her eyebrows. That's more just below her hairline. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And those are very particular makeup styles of the time. Lady Asagi is someone who feels very of the world in the film, but also not because of how she talks and how stilted and theatrical all of her movements and actions are up until the very end of the film, which we'll get to. And I think a lot of that is because of the no theater influence. And the article that or the dissertation or whatever it is that I read talks about how the the music, the traditional Japanese musical stylings that are kind of off kilter and and the atonal sounds that are being used to describe her emotions throughout it are so very typical of 
Japanese and particularly no theater in talking about supernatural mm. and spiritual mm. things. And here she is giving these thoughts, which are seductive to Washizu and very negative. Let's all, let's all be real here. Everything she says leads to violence and death. She advocates him later on in the film, you know, like, well, fuck that guy who you think is your friend. Kill him. Kill him and his kid. Like, I might be having a baby. You know, there's so much violence embedded in all of her suggestions for Washizu that it feels too malevolent to be human. It it kind of comes across as something very negative and seeking its own ends as opposed to her where her fate is very tied up with Washizu. If he dies, she's pretty much expected to ritually kill herself. So there's no advantage for her to like having him come to a short end and she somehow triumphs over it. It's either he wins and she wins or he wins and she dies. So Kurosawa uses so much of this so well to hint at all of these different things, but never commit to any of it. I'm really torn because it... Why? So I'm really torn about... Here comes a hot take. Not even really a hot take. I'm torn about Lady Asagi being possessed by the demon. Okay. Why? Which is just a theory, just to It clarify. is just a theory. That, this is not confirmed anywhere. Right. Because I see everything that's being said, and it's tough to negate. However, a couple of things. The performance style that she's doing is no performance style. It is N-O-H. N-O-H. <laughs> yep, yep. It is, it is no theater, which Kurosawa loves. Understandably, based on his other, his perfectionism, that's something that's reiterated throughout his career. Yes, but it's also really slow and goddamn boring. <laughs> I knew it was coming. And and even Kurosawa himself is like, oh yeah, like foreigners don't get no theater. It's too Japanese. He said even younger Japanese people, like the younger generations of Japanese people, don't get no theater. He sounds a little get off my lawn in that moment, but like, at the same time, like if you've seen any no theater, so a couple of things about it. One is that, yes, masks. Masks are big in no theater, whereas Kabuki, which is the other traditional Japanese theater, and again, this is painting with a really broad brush, but it falls into one of three categories normally. No, Kabuki, and Bunraku. Bunraku is the puppet theater, which is fucking amazing and is easily my favorite. Yes, where it takes like six people to run one puppet. Yeah, it, oh, three cool. people typically: one to run the head, That's one right. to run the one to run the arms, and then one to run the legs. And it's like a marionette mm-hmm. show. It, well, it's a yeah, life-size yeah. marionette on steroids. It's like the people who are working the puppet are dressed in black, moving this puppet along. Whoa. And it's so cool. You have to train ten years before you're allowed to work the legs. Right. Then you train another 10 years and then you're allowed to work the arms and then you train another 10 years and then you're allowed to work the head. 
classic Japanese training, like, you have to make this omelet for the next 10 years. When you see somebody operating the head, that motherfucker's been doing this for 30 years. Bare me- if he's new at running the head, right? he's been doing it for 30 years. Wow. And those puppets look more alive than I do on any, like, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so Kabuki is what most people think of if they were like, hey, you, guy on the street, picture traditional Japanese theater. Like, that guy is going to think of Kabuki. It's it's a lot of makeup. It's basically, uh, and this is where I, I run into like a, a little bit of problem with, not a huge problem, but a little problem as far as like it feels a little uneven. Tashira Mifune's face is a goddamn Kabuki makeup job. In everything he does, he looks like a Kabuki makeup job. It looks like Kabuki is modeled off of Tashira Mifune's It's very face. animated and dramatic. You just like the expressions on it are always like 10 times bigger than his body. You know what I said when I was watching it? I, I looked at my husband and I said, Tashira Mifune kind of looks like a really aggressive frog right now because his, his, his mouth is so like... And he's giving just these looks that yes. are so intense that I can't think of literally, I, I know, maybe Willem Dafoe could pull it off, but there's no boundaries with him. Yeah, intense is like an understatement with him. Right, like his emotions are just so present on his face. It's like there's emotions in his heart and then there they are. There's no, uh, there's no filter. It's like Daniel Day-Lewis at the end of The Crucible, but... In everything. Yeah, exactly. It's like watching a Kabuki performance next to a no performance, which is weird to me. It's just all of it at once. Yeah. So that's, that's what was a little bit weird, but like her performance is no, no has, I mean, Katie, you were talking about like the, the different, uh, gestures and postures in Japanese culture, but in no, it's even more like it, it's like that turned Stylized. it's turned up to eleven, where it's like oh, and then yeah, you exactly. you sit by slowly sinking down onto one knee, and the other knee comes up to here, and then you don't sit up straight. You yep, sit and you can curved. see it in her performance, and because she's giving a yep. a just one hundred percent no performance. And also, a lot of those roles would probably be played by men playing women. Oh. Right. That was traditional. Even more so in Kabuki, where like men who played women in Kabuki were were often thought to actually be better at being women than actual women were. Oh, it's like the original mansplaining. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so fucked up. There are up. so many thoughts. Get out of the way. Let me show you how to play a woman. <laughs> That's great. Like this is, and again, this is not my my thoughts on it. So don't at me. Right, exactly. All uh, Like they put, you know, again, 10 years to work the feet, 10 years to work the arms, 10 years to work the head. They did that, but pretending to be a woman. So it's like, oh, well, you're not walking femininely enough. Let me show you how to walk femininely. And so like her little foot patterns that would be a man playing that part as a woman and that's that's what it read like to me right so 
I'm torn between thinking that she very well could have been like that. Those kind of things. And also how she and the spirit are the most no things in the movie, apart from the staging, the bareness of this, of the set, even the staging happens on her turf when it's at its most. No, but also the other thing with no is, is that it goes very, very glacially. And then pops and then explodes. Right. Like when she's just does. like moving, moving, moving. And then like he goes out to kill the Lord. And then she just starts running around the room. That's what no theater is like. So. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is that. So to be clear, a lot of this is done in. Um, there's a lot of Foley work in this. There isn't a whole lot of uh, sound that comes from the actual filming. There's a lot of Foley work in this. All of the dialogue is overdubbed after the fact. It's really well done. I mean, I mean, granted, not it's great. Not knowing Japanese and not, you know what I mean? When you speak a language, you see the mouth movement, you know what sounds their mouths are making. It's probably easier to catch it if it's a little bit off. But I mean, that is common in foreign films up until the modern period. Yeah. In Italy, they tended to, they would have like actors from seven different nationalities, just saying their lines in their own native language. And then they overdub everybody. That's like classic. But uh, I mean, like, even if you were just doing it in your own native language and it was like, they're like not recording sound. uh, Yeah. They just did not record sound at the same time. They'd like, fuck it. We'll sync it in post. Yeah. It's weird. Exactly. So the thing to think about with this is all of the background noises, because again, Kurosawa is a perfectionist. And so if you are hearing a sound, it's because Kurosawa wanted you to hear a sound. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming sound with Lady Asagi, other than her manipulations, is the susurrations of her kimono. Oh, nice. I know. I, I, I saw the opportunity to drop that word, and I used it. Anyway. Uh, there were myriad susurrations. And that, why is that in there? Because there's so much of it. So many of her scenes, all you hear of her are her little, of her running from place to place to place, and the the noises of her kimono moving and all of that, like all that had to be put in after the fact. Right. Which is so much more intentional than you not cutting a sound out. Right. When you're like taking the time to pay a Foley artist to make that sound, you have to have a damn good reason, either artistically or narratively or whatever to put it in. And again, I think it might have something to do with the, the experience of watching no theater live is that the costuming is so important in no theater you know we we talked a little bit about the masks she's not wearing a mask but her face is painted very dramatically to look like a a a no mask it's it's white and very static and you cannot read expression through it because and again we we talked about this a little bit in kingdom of heaven with like the head positions for mask acting and and things of that nature in no it's one of those instances where your head position not only communicates because that's what we expect, like, oh, this is the way you tilt your head when you're sad. But actually, the mask was was designed to change 
from a frown to a smile to neutral, depending on how you tilted your head. So like the way the light would hit it would change that. And this is something that, again, like goes, you see the same sort of principles uh, applied to animation in Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. He does the same thing with the Iron Giant's face because it's a static face that like when he's happy. Yeah, it's a mask. When he tilts his head down, it looks like he's smiling. When he tilts his head up, it looks like he's frowning. So like that dictates a lot of those movements. But on top of that, the main characters in no, like you'd have the main character and then you'd have the secondary character, but like they were all costumed in a certain level of extravagance with like certain patterns with certain materials. So my guess would be that that is what you would hear from her when she moved. If you were watching no live, I want to move into a couple of the things I did not love technically. I struggle with this in general, and oftentimes I can hear a little voice that is my insecurities taking the role of like one of our listeners going, wait a minute, who the fuck are you to criticize this like great filmmaker or any filmmaker for that matter, since I'm not a fucking (laughs) filmmaker or an actor or anything like that. That's why you keep me around, Dan. (laughs) You air traffic controller and accountant and Liam. And fucking Liam, that's who. An air traffic controller, an accountant, and an asshole. And Liam. (laughs) Are you about to call me an asshole? (laughs) But no, seriously, it's like, I don't have the background to be telling these people how to make their movies better. Unless it's like Fred Durst or something, right? Someone I can like righteously shit on because they're- Like Charlie Sheen, you can tell him. Or Charlie Sheen, right. But, you know, I, I- Based on someone's life, I might be able to shit on them as a person. But again, when it comes to making a great film, now take into account that it's like one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, who I'm also just barely getting acquainted with. I'm really reluctant to mention things that I did not like about this film or that I didn't like the choice that he made or whatever. That being said, I think there are a couple of things here that are probably just a product of the time. I often think about film in the perspective of, again, the medium that it is. And a film from the 1950s has, the art itself has only been around for so long. Now, granted, a lot of this film mirrors theater, but what I'm going to talk about is some of the camera work and some of the editing decisions. So those are still not fledgling, but have only been around since the late 1800s, right? It's not like a play that's been around for, you know for thousands of years. For example, right at the beginning, first of all, I loved the appearance of the castle out of the mist. That whole sequence with the fog, I was just like, oh, I'm in. Like, the cinematography of this film has me locked in, and I can't wait to see what else they do. But there were little decisions. Like, one was a shot that's panning from the top right coming down a hill into the mist, panning onto, I think that monument that's like, I guess a commemoration of where the castle used to be in this fictional world. Um, And the camera moved so fast. It comes down the hill in like two seconds and it's done. And it just didn't match the speed of the mist. I just thought it was a strange choice to move the camera so fast. I was like, Oh man, I would have slowed that down like to half the speed. But whatever, that's a stylistic choice. The one that really got me was the wipe transitions in the film where they, and it's called, I look, I had to look it up because I was like, I don't even know what to call this, 
but it's when um, a transition or a fade, instead of fading the screen out and fading it back in, or there's the straight cut, I guess it's called, but like the famous one from Lawrence of Arabia where T. Lawrence puts out the match and then the sun is coming up in the desert mm-hmm. and it's like the most famous edit probably ever. That's a great I imagine. cut, yeah. It's amazing, right? But it's simple. It's just the timing of it. But it, that is a, right, is that right. a straight cut? What do you call That's that? That's a when cut. You- That's, it's cut too. Does he hit the match and the sun comes up on the match? Yeah, he blows out the match. Yeah, he puts out the match and then the next shot, the sun replaces the match head. And it's a straight cut. Yeah, the point is there's no transition. There's no fade. There's no anything. And the music matches the cut. A drum or something comes in. It's like, bum, you know, and it totally makes sense. So anyways, this film several times shows a wipe. I think it's usually from right to left where the screen literally it's as if you took a line and wiped the screen and then the new new trend or the uh, new shot is underneath the wipe. Yes. And I was like, wow, that is just super. They do a lot of that in Star Wars because Star Wars yes. is inspired by right, Akira right. Kurosawa. Right. And I so felt it looked a little cheesy and dated. It is dated. And, you know, again, we've criticized Hitchcock. You can look at things or not on this show, but, you know, we've talked. No, I've about- shit on Hitchcock a lot. <laughs> oh, a wipe is a wipe, and maybe it's good, and maybe it's not. That's kind of the thing. Right. So there's a stylistic choice there. However, when I looked into it more, I realized something about it that I did not realize before. And I don't know if this applies to other films. I don't think it's inherent to this transition itself, but in Throne of Blood, a straight cut or fade, if there are any, is a change of scene during a simultaneous time period. So it's just trying to show you, and then over here, this is going on in this other battle or whatever. Whereas the horizontal wipe is designed to indicate the passage of time. So they're trying to tell you this next scene, some time has passed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I don't like the artistic choice, but I get that there's a technical point to be made here. And that's how he chose to make it. That's pretty much the only negative things I have to say about this film, because again, I love the rest of it and we'll talk about the ending in a little bit, but I was curious, um, Liam, you've talked a little bit about the theater and sort of things that maybe didn't work exactly for you, but is there anything else you guys want to bring up now that's like criticizing it or that you didn't like about the film? Liam, do you have anything? I don't love no theater. I don't love no theater. I think no theater is boring as fuck and I really don't (laughs) like it. And I'm surprised how much this movie worked for me, considering that it's paying homage to an art form that I really don't personally enjoy. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a a a backhanded compliment, I guess. It's like, good job making me enjoy that thing that I hate. It's it, it's not my style, but this was well done. I mean, as a film critic, it feels really hard to in any way think I could criticize Kurosawa because he is such a perfectionist and so well known and all of this. I think for me, this film really works on a lot of ends. And therefore, I have a hard time saying like, that doesn't work, that doesn't work, that doesn't work because I kind of feel out of my element. I kind of feel like, well, if I don't get it, then it's because of me, not because of the filmmaker. Because there are a lot of movies where I can say, like, if I didn't get this shit, it's because you failed. And maybe that's, maybe that's egotistical, probably. 
With this film, there's so much going on and I'm willing to give it so much more of the benefit of the doubt than I would a more current era or a filmmaker who I felt more um, confident in what they were going with. And I think for me, I kind of kind of I kind of sat back watching this and was like, all right, I've seen a Kurosawa film before. I know that he's amazing. I'm just going to watch it and let it flow over me. And I appreciated it for everything it gave me instead of kind of picking it apart like I usually do as a good, a, a quote unquote, good film critic. So I didn't have a lot of things about this that I thought were unclear. I more took them as like, I didn't get this. I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I took this as like, I'm an idiot. I don't get what's going on here more because I understood in that. Kurosawa has a lot going on that he was trying to say with this film, which all the interviews, all the breakdowns, everything I read about this really supported the idea that Kurosawa had so many thoughts and ideas going into this film. One of the things I read about it was that he made Rashomon and The Seven Samurai, and he wanted to make this film shortly after, but he saw that Orson Welles was making a Macbeth movie and therefore was like, eh, just give it some time. Give it some time before I make my own version. And so therefore, like, he obviously had so much time to think about how he wanted to present this and how he wanted to mix it up with making a Japanese version of this very Shakespearean slash Western story. And so for me, it works. And I'm able to kind of go like, well, again, if I didn't get it, it's because I'm too stupid to understand. Or because I've watched a lot of Japanese cinema and a lot of Japanese anime and all that. So like there are references I don't understand because I've watched a lot of anime where I've been like, this is a reference I don't get. There, There's something going on here that if you're in Japan and you're watching this, you're laughing your ass off because you understand that this is referencing this other thing that I don't see that reference. So therefore, I don't get it. And that's to a certain extent what it felt like with this is that, you know, I kind of got the Macbeth things. and I kind of got some of this, but. A lot of it I didn't get because of my own ignorance. And yet, it still worked so fucking well for me. Even though I have like a very limited uh, experience and understanding of no theater, I could still see those scenes with um, Lady Asagi. And I was like, all right, this is very Japanese theater based. So I think as much as Kurosawa kind of rocks this middle of like trying to connect western and eastern cinema and it works even if you don't necessarily know all of both western and eastern influences that make up this story i'm not always trying to find a marine connection about stuff in our films but sometimes it just comes up and slaps you in the face. And so as I was reading quotes about the making of the film and kind of what Kurosawa thought, I was like, oh, that's cool. There's Marines in this movie. You just don't see them on screen. <laughs> so this is Kurosawa talking about making the film. It was a very hard film to make. We decided that the main castle set had to be built on the slope of Mount Fuji. 
not because I wanted to show this mountain, but because it had precisely the stunted landscape that I wanted, and it is usually foggy. I had decided that I wanted lots of fog for this film. Side note, they built this set as sort of a flat two-dimensional set and didn't like it enough and tore it down and rebuilt it completely. This is the kind of clout and budget that Kurosawa had at the time. Purely because the I saw a quote of this, of the studios, was like, they saw that Kurosawa so often was like, I am unhappy with this, and got what he wanted. They were like, you know what? Fuck it. It's cheaper to just give him what he wants than fight with him over the long term to, to make it worth it. I think that was the right call. Not all heroes wear capes. Continuing Kurosawa's quote. Making the set was very difficult because we didn't have enough people and the location was so far from Tokyo. Fortunately, there was a U.S. Marine Corps base nearby and they helped a great deal. Also, a whole MP battalion helped us out. We all worked very hard indeed, clearing the ground, building the set. Our labor on this steep, fog-bound slope, I remember, absolutely exhausted us. We almost got sick. So the Marine Corps came in to save the day. And helped build the castle, which is kind of cool. Thanks, Marines. The Marines helped and they didn't even kill anybody. <laughs> Dan, you know, you would have bragged about the fact if you had been called in to be like, oh, we need you to make a Kurosawa film. You've been like, I am on board with this and I will hold this for the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? These fucking like 19 year old Lance Corporals stationed in Japan who are normally their extra duties are like, hey, uh. I need 10 volunteers to go pick up cigarettes around this building for like an hour. Oh, yeah. All of you guys are volunteering (laughs) like this kind of work to be like with a famous director. I'm sure they were stoked to do that. They're probably all dressed up like trees at the end, just like running (laughs) around the forest in the fog. Every single one of them is like, I was in a Kurosawa film. They're like, no, you weren't, dude. You're fucking lying. I was a tree. That would have been cool if in exchange he gave them some extra roles to just like, yeah, like as part of the ending, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's time for the breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? And in in perspective of this particular film, the end is pretty well known, and I think we'll all have different opinions on it. And so we're going to include our thoughts on the ending in the breakdown this time around. So, Liam, give us your thoughts. Fucking loved it. No. Um, so, no, we talk about, you know, it's it's been said a, a, a couple of times, I think, depending on what makes it into the final culling of uh, the episode after Dan is, is done chopping me out of it. Uh, but the, you know, we, we've said that the ending is pretty famous. And because it has been said, I believe it. But I knew nothing about the ending of this movie. Like, I know how Macbeth ends. Right, but right. this is not that exactly. Where he just gets fucking peppered with all of the arrows in Japan. All of them, every single one. Every single... They shot actual fucking arrows at Dashira Mifune. And he was like, are we doing this scene again? And they are like... No, we're done for the day. We might do it again tomorrow. And he'd just be like, oh, God. I'm going to the bar, is what he said. Yeah. <laughs> he, was a, he was a big drinker. He was. And and so for those who don't know, uh, the, the final scene where Mifune's character breaks down, you know, 
the the forest is coming towards us. Oh God! And his own men are like, "Fuck this shit! We're killing this guy so that we don't all he die." He totally got fragged. And uh, they shoot arrows at him to the point where he essentially becomes a pincushion. But while they were filming this, almost all of those arrows are shot by actual professional archers to affect the realism of the film. And so all of that wild gesticulation that you see Mifune doing of his arms going in one direction and pointing just wildly like, this is where I'm going. That's why, is to tell the archers, here's where I'm going. Don't kill me. Ha ha. But even if you watch it, I think I knew that going into it and it still comes off feeling very realistic. Well, and also the, the thing that I found so, I mean, that's a crazy ass scene, but on top of that, it also ties back in to what I was saying in the beginning of the movie where that's the culmination of him getting caught in the spider's web. He's working through those arrows that are like when he's trying to get through, get away from it. And the arrows are like hitting right in front of him. He's not like turning around and running away. He's not ducking. He's trying to like work his way through the arrows. Like the arrows are the branches of the forest threatening to catch people in them in the beginning of the film. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting, it was a very interesting way to tie that whole theme together. So those are my thoughts on the, on the ending is that I thought that it was a perfect way to wrap up this film. The, the particular themes that are present in this film that aren't necessarily present in the source material in the, the Shakespearean text are mostly done visually and done very well. The objective was to do a good Macbeth adaptation that was relevant to Japanese history and Japanese culture. Kurosawa was a very interesting figure in Japanese cinema because of his blending of Japanese and Western influences together, which is possibly why he seems so accessible and is, I mean, not only because he's great at his job, um, but why he is probably the most famous uh, Japanese filmmaker in America or or to the West is because his films have a lot of the the beats of the the plot, the thematic elements tend to be things that we can latch onto if we don't know all of the cultural references. Um, but he still is making a movie for Japanese audiences. So in that, I feel like that's his objective there and he absolutely nailed it. And I liked the film. I don't know that I loved it. There were parts of the film that I absolutely loved, but again, like I still have that little weird Kurosawa thing where I'm like, this looks like he stole a 12 year old's camera for some of this and is making a really good movie with it, but he's still using like the look of Japanese cinema from this period kind of grates on my eyes a little bit. But once I was able to get past that, it's a very, very good film, a little boring in parts because it's inspired by no theater, but the parts that grab you do not let go. And that's my breakdown. Dan. Yeah. So the ending, which 
we decided to leave in this space just because we wanted to make sure we talked about it. I mean, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I can't wait to read more about this. And I can't wait to watch this this film again. But this scene is what I really want to watch again. Quick question for either of you guys, but especially for Liam. Do they describe how the forest part of the prophecy comes true in the play? Or is this just left up to people's visual artistic style in terms of how to show that? Because so far, I've seen the 2015 film. They did it in a different way than this one. This film has its own original way of doing it. And I absolutely loved the shots of Washizu looking out the slats. And then the, it's not exactly a point of view shot. They're just showing you what he would see, but I don't think it's necessarily from his eye view. But the way they're moving the trees with the mist and the way it's happening, it's almost like they're showing you 80% of what's happening because you don't see the soldiers below it in those shots. It looks like the ants are coming to Isengard. Exactly. And I felt like it was blowing my mind because even when they're showing you an almost direct shot of the trees moving, I was like, what in the actual fuck is happening right now? And I and I just like was on pins and needles because I was like, I don't know what's happening, but it's so cool the way it looks. So in Shakespeare, there's very, 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 very sparse stage directions. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like Duncan enters, Macbeth exits. The the most interesting stage direction is in all of Shakespeare is from a winter's tale, and it's exits chased by a bear. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I, and I don't remember precisely what it is, but it's it very well might just be like them describing the trees moving on stage and then like people come in with leaves on them. Like so-and-so enters dressed as a tree. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's not going to tell you how to stage it. Most of that is done in the dialogue. The thing that Shakespeare was really good at was creating things not only like by describing them, but also there's a famous passage near the beginning of uh, Merchant of Venice where they're standing, like looking out over the sea, waiting for the ships to come in uh, because Antonio has a ship that is supposed to be coming in that is going to be his good fortune. But of course it ends up sinking and he is in trouble, but there's a lot of W words and a lot of like very wind heavy phrases so it's it there's not a lot of voice to the words it's a lot of w's a lot of h's and things like that that when you are listening to it gives the impression of waves or an ocean wind or something like that uh coming in so that was how he would oftentimes use the language to set the scene he wouldn't be like when you when you stage this you have to show the trees in this fashion or that fashion how he uses the language is subtle the stage directions are non-existent and it one of the reasons why shakespeare is so uh prevalent even today is its openness to interpretation both Mm -hmm. thematically textually but also how you want to execute the performance like how you want it you can make it as big and lavish or as small and simple as you like. That's really cool. And I actually really like that. The reason why I asked is because in the 2015 film, 
essentially Macduff's soldiers burn down the forest that's near the castle and all the smoke and flame and all the birds and everything is getting into the castle and probably even affecting the defender's eyes and stuff. And so to them, Mm. it was a little more metaphorical, but like that was the forest reaching them. Right. And so because I saw that, I was like, okay, this must be written in a way that allows for a lot of interpretation. All you know is that the forest came to the place somehow, but you don't really know what that means. Very cool. So anyways... To get back to Kurosawa in this film, I loved his choice and how he depicted that. Uh, it's way more impactful than what actually happened, which is, you know, they cut down trees and use them for camouflage and probably to batter down some doors. But just the moment they show you visually was such a cool representation. And then, yeah, I mean, the arrow scene, I think that the combination of, you know, the real fear on Mifuna's face, who is a man and a person who was probably not scared very often in his life. In general, he strikes me as a pretty brave dude. He was a pilot during the war. You know, he worked with one of the most, one of the greatest directors ever and was pretty confident, etc. But I think that the idea of shooting real arrows into the wood, like inches away from his face was that Kurosawa wanted to capture that genuine look of fear. And so it's like some of it is his acting because certainly his acting is incredible, but some of it is that genuine surprise and shock at the arrows landing. There's also a combination of a lot of things going on, such as his acting pointing out to the archers where he was going to go. Funny enough, initially they were going to have like local college students who I guess had taken archery be like the dudes shooting these arrows and Mifuna Dude, was that like, could have been me I took archery in college yeah that could have been murder it could have been death that's and, what and, that is and Mifune was basically like the what <laughs> and he was like <laughs> he no. was like no he's like I went to a horse riding archery school how about you go get students from that school who are like doing well in the course and bring them in to be <laughs> archers and Kurosawa was like all right, that sounds good. So that's what they ended up doing. And then, of course, they're not shooting them from very far away. They were a few meters away. They're like standing on a little tower in that courtyard. Oh, and they reinforced his armor too, right? So that it was like there were like needle ends on it that would like stick in the wood of his armor. Exactly. So there were multiple things going on. Uh, Some of the arrows that were shot to actually hit him, like in the back, in the chest, whatever, were hollowed out bamboo arrows that were on a wire. So they were really shot, but the wire controlled where they landed so that they wouldn't accidentally hit him in the face. And yes, some of them had needle points added to them. And you can kind of see that. I th- I'm i not 100% sure about this, but I think some of the ones hitting the wood had those needle points because you can see that the arrows are barely penetrating the wood, yet they're still holding on but when he swats them down they come off pretty easily and that i think is because it's not the arrowhead that's embedded in the wood it's just the this sort of needle point which again makes sense for what they were doing they did put pieces of wood under his armor where he was meant to be hit so it's kind of like it was done as safely as they could for shooting real arrows within a foot from his face But the potential for an accident to happen was definitely there, and they didn't have insurance for it. And it was like ballsy all the way around for everyone doing that. So that's the background of that scene. The performance is incredible for all of those reasons. 
But I also think that if you add, again, the scene with the trees, him trying to yell at his men and tell them that this is treason and they have to follow him and what are they doing and they need to fight and the men are just stoically standing there before the first arrows fly. And I was like, oh man, this scene is just pregnant with intensity and with tension. So he gets pincushioned, he's going through all the motions and then he comes down the stairs and that shot, the end of this scene is by far my favorite shot in the film one of my favorite shots I think I've ever seen where the mist is just sort of sitting there at about three feet, kind of adding texture to the whole scene and to the men. He comes down the stairs, the camera's looking at him from the front and he puts his right hand on his sword hilt to go, you know, to go down fighting. He's, he's come downstairs. He's dying. He's got, Oh, how can I forget? I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the arrow they shot through his neck or, you know, that they show going through his neck. That edit is so perfect. That's a really, really nice, nicely done edit. They try so hard, but it's just like this fraction, fraction of difference. You can tell if you slow it down and you know what you're looking for, right? But especially when you consider that the editor in this, Chozo Obata, is also listed as negative cutter kind of reminds you that the way they had to edit this was literally physically by hand. So imagine how hard it was to get that all lined up perfectly. So for the technology that they had, that's about as perfect as you could do that. But back to when he's coming down the stairs, then the camera shoots him from behind. And when he dies, he never got to pull his sword out and he falls forward. And the shape of his body, the way his legs are extended and the way he just falls forward and you see the mist, I think, sort of retreat from from the air, from him hitting the ground, was just so gorgeous. I absolutely love that shot. So well done. That The ending is just incredible. To go to my breakdown, again, I feel arrogant trying to interpret what Kurosawa was going for. Liam, I think, nailed it, but... Yeah, whether this was initially made for Japanese audiences or whether he thought it was going to be a hit worldwide, you know, like Liam, considering that I know nothing about no theater, well, he knows about no theater, but I'm saying considering what I don't know and my lack of exposure, I was surprised by how much I loved what they did and how it came off. So if he was trying to, you know, do the play Macbeth for a Japanese audience, make it relatable and make it in the 1600s in Japan. I mean, yeah, I I don't know how else you could have made this film. And yet it's very artistic and very original. And I think one of the comments I read that resonated with me the most was, you know, he removes half of the Shakespeare. Obviously they're not literally quoting Shakespeare. They wrote their own screenplay, but the point being half the dialogue is gone And yet what he replaced with visuals more than makes up for it. And I think I agree when I talk about a film taking advantage of the medium that it's in, this film really does that a hundred percent. It leans hard into the cinema and into the filmic aspect of it. And so I really think that they knocked it out of the park with that. Yeah. It's kind of funny to ask, is it on target when we're literally talking about a scene with like 300 arrows shot at a dude? So yes, I think <laughs> this was on target. Pretty and, on target. And I absolutely loved it. I'm really curious to see 
um, how watching other Kurosawa films and other Mifune performances, then going back to watch this, you know, gives me a different layer to it and different context. But in terms of my first exposure to Kurosawa and Mifune and really Japanese film of this style, I'm super stoked that this was it. And I know it was a unique experience that I'm not going to get exactly in the same way again. So yeah, I absolutely love this. I'm really, really glad that we picked it. Sorry, Katie, it sucks to go last. We need to make sure you go first one of these times because it sucks to go last when so much has already been said. It's all good. Okay, so... Here, here's the thing, though, is I have kind of a different perspective on it than both of you guys, because I've been watching Japanese cinema and film since I was young. Well, like I said earlier, Kurosawa is one of my blind spots, but I've watched a bunch of other Japanese films, both modern and uh, classic and period pieces and all of this. And I think for me, the ending of this film is such an art piece like the rest of the movie. And that for me, when I watch this, it feels very artistic in that it, both because it's a it's a fucking Shakespeare play. It's a adaptation of no theater and it's Kurosawa. Like there are so many different pieces moving within this that gave me a perspective where I was kind of able to step back and just go like, this is so jumbled. I don't even know how to feel about it. So I'm just going to watch it and enjoy. And when I looked at it as what was Kurosawa trying to say with this film, I think I probably couldn't fucking know because everything I read about it is that he understood layer upon layer upon layer with how deep he wanted to tell this story. And I was really only able to capture some of it but it also spoke to me in ways that I think Kurosawa didn't necessarily intend. Like with Lady Asagi, I was like, oh, I can kind of understand where as a woman in this culture, you are trying to find your place and make a difference and sell your perspective to your partner, who's the only person who can actually make change in the society. You, all you can do is sit there and make statements. You can't actually do anything. Whereas in this film, you know, Washizu really makes some pretty big moves based exclusively on his wife's input. He has this supernatural ideal of what could happen, but the thing that's pushing him above and beyond all of it is his wife saying like, well, your friend might betray you. You could achieve these heights. All of this comes into play and it feels like his wife's desires and input has more weight even than the supernatural efforts on it. It's like it gives him this idea, but then his wife pushing it is what actually makes it happen. And that's why I think to a certain extent there is an argument to be made for why Lady Asagi may be more of a Lady Macbeth character, someone who in the traditional ideal is thought of as a she's driven by her desires and demands and goals in life. Whereas Macbeth at least in my understanding in the traditional play, feels a little bit more passive, whereas his wife is the one who's pushing him to achieve these goals. So for me, I think Kurosawa's film achieves that of 
allowing us to feel the impact of his quote-unquote Lady Macbeth or Lady Asagi, who is pushing him, but also he feels the impact of that spiritual presence, which for Japanese culture, spirituality and the weight of ancestors and all of that is something that has much more impact on their life than us Westerners, because us Westerners, there's none of that. There's no impact on how our grandparents might think we should achieve our goals or whatever. That is something, especially in this era of Japan, that was thought of. So for me, I felt like it works, and I was fascinated by it. And I think Kurosawa is really trying to make us think about the impact of our own desires, of our own pressures based on what we should be versus what we are versus what our ancestors think we should be. And he manages to capture all of that in not a lot of screen time. I mean, this is less than two hours. There's not a lot of dialogue. So much of it is captured in the actor's facial expressions, in their movements, in the quote-unquote masks that people both wear and don't wear. And when we're talking about like Lady Asagi's makeup, because it's not really a mask, it is very much the kind of makeup that would have been expected for a lady of her time to wear, but it is a mask in how we would think of masks today, in that it is meant to set a precedent of how we're going to behave, what we're going to want, all of those things. I really fucking like this movie. I I liked um my la- the last Kurosawa film I watched that was based on Hamlet, um The Bad Sleep Well. The Bad Sleep Well. Yes, like and I can't <laughs> wait to wa- I can't wait to watch Ron, which is based on King Lear. And I've seen some of Kurosawa's later films. And his perfectionism, his desire to really plumb the depths of humanity's needs and dreams. Fuck, now we're talking. Uh, I knew Liam would like that. Is so on display nakedly in this film. Because Washizu's desires from the very beginning. That's what we're talking about here. The ghost makes it clear that this isn't anything that they've thought of. They are pulling these desires and wishes from the men who are standing in front of them. And that continues throughout the entire film. None of this is something that the ghosts or demons or whatever are putting on these people. These are all naturally occurring ideas that are welling up within them that the the ghost or spirits are manipulating and taking advantage of for their own benefit so it it was something that really spoke to me in a way that i love it when cinema does i've had scorsese do this i've had a myriad of other directors oh boy there you go liam fuck you (laughs) you're welcome do for me and i think kurosawa does it Honestly, does it best because he's so interpretive because you can come at it from all these different perspectives and still find something in it that is new and unique. So I think, you know, for me, this film really works. I think it explores a lot of ideas, both new and old, that deserve exploration. 
and I'm really glad we talked about it. I'll definitely watch this movie again and think probably entirely newly new things about it. <laughs> Maybe I'll hate Lady Asagi next time because I really liked her this time around. What are we doing next? So next time we are covering The Death of Solon by Armando Iannucci, who is most well-known probably for Veep on HBO. It is a story about the death of Stalin. Weird. So it's set in Moscow in 1953, just before and after Stalin's death, and it's a comedy, and it's pretty fucking weird. And fun. That's all I can say about it. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. We're excited to do the next episode and all the rest of them. Man, this project is... I'm really stoked on how this project is going, and I really love all stoked? the films. Are you super stoked? I'm super stoked. And I love all the films we've talked about so far. I know we keep talking about it, but it's because it's on my to-do list and I'm trying to find time here and there to do it. But we will be releasing our Patreon episodes soon, which we are super excited to share with you guys. I'm still working on editing interviews. So all the stuff we have promised is still on the back burner and happening. We're just trying to catch up with the workload. If you guys have been enjoying the show, please write in, tell us what you like, what you don't like, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, um, join us on Facebook in our Danger Close podcast discussion group where people bring up all kinds of points and we talk about things we didn't quite get to in each episode. We'll talk to you guys soon. I am super excited because today's film is uh, a lot of firsts for the show. We are dipping our toes into Japanese cinema for the first time with arguably its most famous director, Akira Kurosawa. I don't even think that's arguable at this point. I think that's I just like right. he, I mean, Kurosawa. We did, we did do Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, shit. <laughs> that's pretty Japanese. <laughs> God oh, it. it's the most Japanese. You got to cut this whole shit out. I got to cut just, it. It's over. done. It's just, just done. Well, Fuck it. For all of Sorry. you who, for all of you who stuck around for the post credits to hear this garbage, uh, you get to see how we <laughs> screw up in the show. By we, you mean Dan, of course. Yeah. So today we are. You gotta. Going- you gotta trust our our token weeaboo to. <laughs> to remember when uh when we've already done a, a film in japanese uh i love that this edit is already completely off the fucking rails it's so- yeah man you got I'm, i keep listening to podcasts that are like more simple and straightforward and i'm like wow it doesn't even sound like they had to edit this at all i'm like maybe someday we'll have a recording that's straightforward we'll and then never. no man and then we sit no. down i am here I'm to like, make sure mind. that never happens for you pretty much